0: I will occasionally mention to my students that I have de-knifed a student in the past. It's a boast that makes them look at me slightly differently, boosting my image in their mind as a suitable protector. The Mughal Empire fell to the East India Company beneath the bravado of Robert Clive. At least that's the way he wanted his biographers to write it. The truth is always more complex— which is easier to see when you add in the context of the time. Take my denifing story, which after a long storyteller's pause, I continue to point out that I was walking down the hall one day and some kid was sitting in a chair eating an apple with his small pocket knife. I turned towards him to let him know that he couldn't have that in school. He said, really? Then shrugged before peacefully handing it over to me without a fuss. The headline catches your attention, but the circumstances surrounding the event are what really matter. Historian Jadonath Shrikar provides that clarity when he writes that when Clive struck at the emperor, Mughal civilization had become a spent bullet. Its potency for good, its life was gone. The country's administration had become hopelessly dishonest and inefficient, and the mass of people had been reduced to the deepest poverty, ignorance, and moral degradation by a small, selfish, and unworthy ruling class. In other words, Clive merely kicked over an empty husk. Shrikar continues, teaching us that Imbecile leechers filled the throne. The family of Alivarde did not produce a single son worthy to be called a man, and the women were even worse than the men. Sadists, like Siraj, made even their highest subjects live in constant terror. The army was rotten and honeycombed with treason. The purity of family life was threatened by the debauchery fashionable in the court and the aristocracy. I know far too much about the subject to ever argue that India was better off beneath the EIC. But the takedown of the Mughal Empire did coincide with a revival of fortune for the subcontinent. Historian Arun Anand writes that the fall of the Mughal Empire in Bengal kicked off a massive renaissance. In the space of less than one generation, in the 20 years from Plassey to Warren Hastings, The land began to recover from the blight of medieval theocratic rule. The dry bones of a stationary Oriental society began to stir. It was truly a renaissance, wider, deeper, and more revolutionary than that of Europe after the fall of Constantinople. Bengal had been despised and thrown into the corner during Mughal times as a hell well stocked with bread but now it became a pathfinder and light-bringer to the rest of India. But was it sustainable? That is the question that comes with every single business venture, and one that individuals who found themselves caught up in the Renaissance began to ask about the East India Company. Unfortunately for all involved, the answer would be a resounding no. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the East India Company. Episode number three, The Creation of England's Crown Jewel. One year after the anniversary of the decisive EIC victory at Plassey, Mir Jafar, the new ruler of what were merely the remnants of the Mughal Empire, paid a state visit to the company's seat of power in Calcutta. By this point, the mantle of absolute power had corrupted Jafar absolutely. Clive noted that the man whom he had raised up to the throne had now become heavy-handed, gluttonous, and abusive. Heavy consumption of alcohol and opium were the most common explanations for Jafar's behavior, which had seemingly alienated the hearts of even his most loyal subjects. He made the visit to Calcutta out of weakness rather than strength, as it had only taken three years for him to drain the kingdom's resources. The Jaeger Seths, the bankers who had financed Jafar's coup, had abandoned him after they had recognized that he was unfit to rule. Unpaid troops across the country were on the verge of mutiny, and thus the ruler turned to the company for support. After all, the EIC had experienced unprecedented profit from the literal loot that its director had sent back to England. In fact, the shareholders were so happy with the work that Clive was doing for their bottom line that they chose to overlook the immense amount of treasure that he was skimming from the top. He had bought up so much land in Clare County that he was able to rename the entire area to Plassey, the scene of his greatest victory. It was even being reported in the papers that Clive's pet ferret regularly wore a diamond necklace worth in excess of a quarter of a million dollars making it far and away history's most fancy ferret. Far from being the successor to the elite Mughal Empire, Jafar was closer to a regional warlord than divine ruler. As such, Mir Jafar wasn't going to get a handout from the EIC. Historian William Dalrymple, whose work The Anarchy is our main source for this series, notes that the company, far from helping Mir Jafar, was actively engaged in undermining the economy which sustained him, helping wring the neck of the Bengali goose which had been laying such astonishing golden eggs. After Plassey, unregulated private English traders began fanning out across Bengal, taking over markets and asserting their authority in a way that had been impossible for them before the revolution. By 1762, at least 33 of these private businesses had set themselves up in more than 400 new British trading posts around the province. Here, they defied the power of local officials, refusing to pay the few taxes, tolls, or custom duties that they were still required to pay, as well as encroaching upon land to which they were not entitled to. In this manner, they ate away at the economy of Bengal, like an invasion of termites steadily gnawing at the inside of an apparently sturdy wooden structure. Focused only on their bottom line, the company didn't realize that the further one went up from Calcutta, the worse the once great empire had become. One contemporary noted that the country lies groaning under the anarchy. Laws have no power of sanction. Morals are corrupt to the ultimate degree. The people groan under a multitude of vexations, all caused by the decay and confusion into which this once great empire has fallen. The EIC didn't mind the ruler of the country living his life in a drug induced haze. But they also didn't want him to fall. Such an act could create chaos, something that is rarely good for the bottom line. As a result of the meeting, Warren Hastings was implanted within Jafar's court in order to keep the ship sailing upright. Hastings is one of the rare good guys within the apparatus that was the East India Company. Rather than arriving in India chasing glory, he had been unceremoniously dumped there against his wishes. He was raised by his grandfather after his mother passed away during his birth. Rather than sticking around to deal with the situation, his father ran off without his son to the new world, seeking after easy riches. The boy became a top-level student, hanging out at school with Edward Gibbon, who would go on to establish himself as the ultimate scholar regarding the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Alas, the death of his benefactor meant that he was forced to leave school in favor of a place within the East India Company as a writer. Continuing his rotten run of luck, the 16-year-old arrived just in time to be taken prisoner during the pillaging from Siraj Udula. Unlike Robert Clive, who had never managed to learn the local language, Hastings fell in love with his second home. He became a fierce supporter for the rights of the Bengal people and expressed disdain for the fellow men of the company writing that they were often so scandalous that I can no longer put up with them without injury to my own character. I am tired of complaining to people who are strangers to justice, remorse, or shame. Embedded within the court, Hastings helped to ease the transition from Mir Jafar to their next ruler, Shah Alam. Alam was a prince from the previous ruling family of the Mughal dynasty. The boy, along with all other princes of royal lineage, was viewed as a succession threat by Jafar, who had shunned the title of emperor in favor of the governor or viceroy of India. In order to contain the danger, all princes were raised in a prison-like environment. The website DNA India describes it for us telling us that, hidden away from the resplendent courts and palaces, the Red Fort housed a grimy slum called the Salatin Quarters. Here, hundreds of Mughal princes and princesses languished in pitiful conditions. These quarters had developed as a symbol of all that was wrong with political succession in the Mughal Empire. Any male of royal descent, and there were many of these, could be propped up by powerful factions leading to civil wars. To avoid this, all descendants of former emperors were confined to the Salatin quarters and kept under close watch. As the Mughal Empire's prosperity declined, so did the budget for the already Spartan quarters. It soon devolved into a squalid and overpopulated slum with no arrangements for education, nourishment, and sanitation. Many princes and princesses went degenerate or mad in this dungeon. The boy that became Shah Alam, however, managed to make a daring escape and had traveled the countryside gathering up allies that had remembered better days beneath the rule of his father, the 17th Mughal emperor. Early in 1760, after Robert Clive had departed from India, presumably to spend more time with his bejeweled ferret, Shah Alam began a civil war on the subcontinent by attacking the morally bankrupt ruling regime. Mir Jafar was far more brutal than his opponent. Actor Daniel Day Lewis brought one of the greatest, albeit lesser-known, historical characters to life, in his portrayal of Bill the Butcher Cutter for the gangs of New York. One of the many standout conversations involves the cutthroat nature of what it takes to stay on top of the pyramid. The Butcher tells his counterpart, I'm 47, 47 years old. You know how I stayed alive this long? All these years? Fear. The spectacle of fearsome acts. Somebody steals from me, I cut off his hands. He offends me, I cut out his tongue. He rises against me, I cut off his head, stick it on a pike, raise it up high so all on the streets can see. That's what preserves the order of things, fear. Shah Alam had one of the toughest childhoods on record, but that doesn't mean that he knew the extent of what it would take to wrestle away power from a corrupt authority hell-bent on retaining it. Whereas Shah Alam ordered his troops to halt so that his opponent could collect the wounded, Jafar worked behind the scenes to bribe his opponent's men to turn on him. The turning point came when it became known that Jafar had emotionally fallen apart after his son was found killed in his tent. Weakness often invites challenges. It was at this point that Warren Hastings, the company's eyes and ears at court, identified Jafar's son-in-law as an ideal replacement. Behind-the-scenes negotiations made it clear that the EIC was willing to support a coup, which would install him as the land's ruler. In exchange, three more territories would be ceded to the British company. The coup turned out relatively bloodless as the mutineers successfully surrounded Jafar, cutting him off from food and water. His son-in-law then arrived to escort him out of the jam without explaining to the deposed ruler that he was in fact the head of the coup. Dalrymple writes that Mir Jafar was given an escort and he was permitted to take with him women, jewels, treasure and whatever else he thought proper. As he was rowed downstream, he finally realized that he had not been so much as rescued as deposed. The company oversaw his house arrest by providing a suitable townhouse within their stronghold of Calcutta, allowing him to retire with a modest pension. The new ruler, Mir Kasim turned out to be quite effective Although he was unable to initially pay the money that he had promised his EIC kingmakers, he built a powerful state by establishing a highly centralized military state, paid for by doubling his citizens' taxes, as well as seizing the property of any citizen whom he personally deemed guilty of corruption. Knowing intimately the role that the EIC had played in the last two successions, He moved his seat of power as far away from Calcutta as he reasonably could. Recognizing their success, he ensured that his army was trained according to European tactics, bringing in a German as his lead trainer. Seeking to head off any internal rebellion, he built up a surveillance state, and soon many powerful men began to disappear. It was said that these killings instilled such fear in the hearts of people that they dared not speak out against him or his policies, and that no one felt safe in their own home. Had the company's leaders known how effective Mir Kasim would be at cutting the threads that bound him to the EIC, They never would have aided Qasim's father-in-law in his efforts to annihilate Shah Alam's army at the beginning of 1761. But it was in defeat that Alam rose. Dalrymple reveals that it was only now, after the company had defeated Shah Alam and his army had largely dissolved, that the British began to understand the moral power still wielded by the emperor through lineage. Shah Alam had lost everything even his personal baggage, writing table, and calligraphy case, which had fallen when his elephant charged off the battlefield, and he could now offer his followers almost nothing of practical value. And yet they continued to revere him. As governor, Qasim occupied the literal seat of power for the moment, but it turns out that sitting on the peacock throne doesn't make you the true Mughal emperor in the eyes of the people. Sensing a business opportunity, the East India Company invited Shah Alam to become their guest in Calcutta. They even went so far as setting up a makeshift throne for him at one of their factories. Dalrymple writes that the only person displeased with this turn of events was the newly installed viceroy, Mir Qasim. He feared with good reason that now that the company had the emperor in their clutches, the usefulness of a tame governor was diminished. And that the company might ask to have themselves appointed in his stead. Mir Kasim was right to be anxious on this score. This was indeed an option the council in Calcutta had weighed up, but decided not to pursue for the time being. So it was that Mir Kasim finally met his emperor, the refugee of the world, sitting on a makeshift throne within an East India Company opium factory. Alam and Qasim worked out a tentative power-sharing agreement, which would allow Qasim and the EIC to reign supreme in the Bengal region. In exchange for legitimizing the company's role in both coup d'etats, Qasim agreed to ensure that tax payments to the crown would resume, granting Alam the stream of revenue that was badly needed in order to hold on to the peacock throne, if he could find his way to it. Three months later, the heir to the Mughal Empire departed for the West in search of allies strong enough to allow him to resist outside influence. The two would-be powers that were left behind soon descended into intense bickering over who was the real power in Calcutta, with Kasim noting that the EIC have decided to disrupt my rule. They insult and humiliate my people. And from the frontiers of Hindustan up to Calcutta, they denigrate and insult me. The capable company man Warren Hastings was once again inserted into the fray. To everyone's surprise, he appeared to take Kasim's side and was particularly harsh with William Ellis, the man who was in charge of the EIC for the moment, claiming that the company was metaphorically raping the entire countryside. The evil unleashed by the company, which he assured those that read his report, was not confined to just Cassim and his allies, but was practiced by their soldiers and the company's managers. Dalrymple writes that the English would have avoided great misfortunes when they broke with the governor, had they but followed the wise counsel of Mr. Hastings but a few bankrupt and dissipated English counselors who had got themselves into debt and were determined to rebuild their personal fortunes at whatever public cost, pursued their ambitions, and caused a war. Faced with a negative report that accurately reflected the facts on the ground, Ellis polled a move familiar to anybody who watches how the American Congress behaves. He hired his best friend to write an entirely new report, that wholly contradicts the one submitted by Hastings. Acting as an ostrich, burying his head in the sand, the EIC ignored reality in favor of a set of alternative facts. By the way, now is as good of a time as any to clear up some common misconceptions regarding Earth's favorite oversized flightless birds. When confronted by danger, ostriches don't dig a hole and bury their head in the sand. The saying comes from the days of the ancient Roman Empire, which imported ostriches from Africa for both meat and sport. Now you might be saying, wait a minute, there are pictures of ostriches with their head in the sand. But the context is key, as the ostrich isn't hiding from prey. Rather, they're hiding their eggs, which need to be turned over regularly Pliny the Elder was the first to be recorded using the phrase as a metaphor for refusing to recognize one's problem. Another favorite myth that I had held onto for decades was shattered within the last calendar year by one of my students. It's the belief that you should run in a zigzag pattern if you ever find yourself being chased by an alligator or crocodile. The assumption there was that the creatures have trouble turning directions with their tiny legs. But in reality, you're just tiring yourself out if you do that. Surprisingly, one of the few animal myths of our childhood that holds up involves punching a shark in the nose. Which is exactly what Mir Kasim decided to do just as the calendar was flipping to 1763. Despite promising Shah Alam otherwise, he abolished all taxes throughout the land of Bengal. The result of such an action was that the EIC, which had never paid any taxes, no longer had a decisive economic advantage over the local traders. The intensified competition sparked fighting in the streets, as locals fought back against the previously lopsided deals that they had agreed to when they had previously been backed into a corner. Six months after losing their duty-free advantage, the EIC, under the leadership of Ellis, launched a 1 a.m. assault on the city of Patna. But thanks to well-placed factory spies, Mir Qasim was ready for them. The EIC soldiers took the sleeping city of Patna, but soon met Qasim's four platoons of reinforcements, which had been carefully tucked away three miles from the besieged metropolis. After a week's worth of intense fighting, three-fifths of the EIC troops had been killed, arrested, or abandoned the cause. Ellis and a number of high-level company men were forced to surrender. An all-out war for Bengal was now inevitable, and the company declared it on July 4, 1763. Knowing that they would never be accepted as the overlords, they reached back into the recent past for a solution, incredibly suggesting that their old friend Mir Jafar ought to be placed back upon the seat of the governorship. Dalrymple writes that, making war against the governor they had personally installed only five years earlier was not only a political embarrassment for the company, it was a financial disaster. The company was sinking under the burden of war, wrote Luke Scrafton, and was obliged to borrow great sums of money from their servants at 8% interest. And even with that assistance, were obliged to send their ships half-loaded to Europe, as they did not have spare funds to buy the Indian goods to send to London. But militarily, the campaign against Mir Qasim was a slow but steady success. While the indigenous armies arrayed against them were learning European tactics, it soon became clear that they had not yet mastered them. The EIC's casualties were up, but they were the victors of nearly every clash between the two armies. As the losses mounted, Mir Kasim's state of mind entered a dark alley. He had become convinced that he was being betrayed from within, and lashed out at his perceived enemies with increased brutality, regularly killing his low-level company prisoners in front of the elite company prisoners such as Ellis. In a moment of paranoia, he even assassinated his most loyal Armenian commander, a man known as the Wolf. Qasim also ordered the deaths of the powerful Jagat Seth bankers. As the doors closed in on him, he implored Warren Hastings to negotiate a deal that would allow him to abandon his post in favor of making the holy pilgrimage to Mecca. He swore an oath on the Quran that failure to accept the agreement would result in the barbaric beheading of William Ellis and all of the remaining Englishmen in his prisons. The EIC held the upper hand on the battlefield, however, and thus delayed in responding to Mir Qasim's request. Ellis and his fellow prisoners were unaware of anything that had been happening in the war when they were suddenly let out of their cells to be fed a grand meal. Upon finishing their food, a call went out that anyone who was French, Italian, German, or Portuguese could leave. However, not understanding what was happening, most dithered in confusion. After the plates had been cleared and the servants had exited the room, the soldiers lined alongside two walls began to open fire. Forty-five EIC members lost their lives in what became known as the Patna Massacre. Sumru, a German who had gone native in his support of Qasim, had been the designer of the massacre's escape room. He's a character that seems to come straight off the pages of the Hunger Game novels by Suzanne Collins, as he was reportedly impressed with the spark of life that the victims clung to, noting that they fought back as best they could, often with knives which they had hidden away during the feast. One man even successfully concealed himself within the trench that had been collectively used as the latrine for the festivities. Unfortunately, this 18th-century Andy Dufresne was murdered upon his discovery three days later. Two hundred indigenous sepoys also met their maker that evening as they refused to switch sides. Sometimes when we do something wrong, we just immediately know that we've gone too far. I discovered that feeling while fighting with my sister when I was a middle schooler. As the doorframe broke in my parents' bathroom, both my sister and I knew that I was going to face consequences that were far worse than whatever it had been that we were fighting about. Rather than continuing our fight, we both walked to our separate rooms in stunned silence. The Patna massacre was such an instance for Mir Qasim, who hit the road with all of the accumulated wealth of Bengal which was available to him. He hoped to put himself in the safekeeping of Shah Alam, forming the backbone of an all Mughal alliance designed to push the English from the subcontinent's shores once and for all. Alam did join his forces to Qasim, creating a mishmash collection of forces which moved ponderously across India, covering the country like ants or locusts. It was perhaps as much as 150,000 strong and designed for a Hollywood movie. Mir Qasim's new army had taken on the attitude of their German commander Sam the architect of the Patna Massacre. Shah Alam's cavalry were among the best in the country. Afghan Rohilas rode camels into battle armed with armor-piercing swivel guns. The Persian Jilbash cavalry wore the highly visible red felt hats, while Shuja commanded 6,000 naked, dreadlocked Hindu Naga Sadhus. Although they were marching away from Calcutta, the company was given warning that they would return, having been told to hand over all the territory in their possession and cease to interfere with the government of the country. They were told to revert to their proper place as humble merchants and confined themselves to their original profession of trade. It was the modern-day equivalent of telling LeBron James to shut up and dribble. Failure for the company to abide meant the resumption of war. Major John Karnak had the first chance at glory against the combined armies of Qasim and Shah Alam, but he and his 19,000 troops wisely retreated towards Patna. It was a wise decision, as it would turn out that time was on the company's side, as it helped to expose infighting within the Qasim coalition. For even though the enemy of my enemy can be my friend, often there is a reason that you weren't friends in the first place. The Organizational Psychological Review Journal notes that the presence of negative emotions signifies the presence of potential problems in an alliance. These problems may revolve around issues of opportunism, communication, and decision-making, cultural barriers, and or a lack of strategic alignment, all of which impair the alliance from obtaining its goals. Although the psychological review didn't include in their study the impact of 6,000 naked, dreadlocked Indian warriors have upon cohesion, I would imagine that it would also be listed as a no-no. Contemporary historian Ghulam Hassan Khan writes that there was so little order and discipline amongst these troops and so little were the men accustomed to command that in the very middle of the camp they fought, killed, and murdered each other and went out a plundering and a maraudering without the least scruple or the least control. No one would inquire into these matters." and those ungovernable men scrupled not to strip and kill the people of their own army if they chanced to lag behind their main, or be found in some lonely spot. They behaved exactly like a troop of highwaymen, carrying away every head of cattle they could discover. They were so thorough in their destruction that they left no trace of prosperity, habitation, or cultivation within a 10-mile radius of their march. The Horde reached the city of Patna on May 3, 1764. Cohesion was so frayed by this point, the right hand had no idea what the left was up to. The naked Nagas led the charge against the walls, only to be mowed down by expert company fire. Shuja's 6,000 attacked blindly for three straight days, while Karnak's men took the time to develop well defended entrenchments. Despite the escalating casualties among the Naga forces, they steadfastly refused to partake in the fighting until their trench was done. Frustrated with his slowpoke allies, Shuja abruptly abandoned the alliance, just as the beleaguered city was down to its last supplies. Worse for Kasim, his German assassin accepted a bribe from the rebellious Suja and shackled the former governor of Bengal. Rather than winning, the East India Company survived long enough to see their enemies falter. In October, a fresh company of the king's regiment, along with reinforcements of company sepoys, arrived and went on the attack. Realizing that the remaining cavalry were useless in trench warfare, Shah Alam ordered a charge against the incoming reinforcements. Despite giving up their immense defensive advantage, the tactics worked, and the cavalry mowed through the riflemen. But they were undisciplined and rather than finishing the job, they descended into a looting frenzy before the fight was over. The EIC forces used the chaos to regroup before leading a vicious counterattack which broke the enemy. They had lost one-eighth of their soldiers, but the Mughals had lost five times as much at what became known as the Battle of Buxar. Dalrymple writes, Dalrymple writes, that it was ultimately one of the most decisive battles in Indian history, even more so than the most famous battle of Plassey seven years earlier. The three great armies of the Mughal world had come together to defeat the company and expel it from India. When instead it was the Mughals that were defeated, the company was left the dominant military force in northeast India. Buxar confirmed the company's control of Bengal and the coast, and opened the way for them to extend their influence far inland to the west. It was also good for business, with the historian noting that this, above all, was the moment this corporate trading organization succeeded in laying the ground for its territorial conquest of India. A business enterprise had now emerged from its crystallis, transformed into an autonomous imperial power, backed by a vast army, already larger than that of the British crown, and was poised now to exercise administrative control over 20 million Indians. A body of merchants had been transformed into the de facto sovereign rulers of much of northern India. The result was what Adam Smith would call a strange absurdity, a company state." It was the most extraordinary corporate takeover in history. Shaw Alam was determined to be the most useful piece remaining on the chessboard. He had remained in his tent throughout the entire Buxar campaign. More importantly, he had kept in constant contact with the EIC throughout the siege. Unsure what to do with him, he remained free, but under the watchful gaze of EIC company men. The capitalist institution knew that they had the opportunity to lay the groundwork for their future in India. For such an important task, the EIC brought in its best, commissioning Robert Clive for a third campaign on the subcontinent his wealth had made him fat and complacent. If you think that's just me insulting the man, note that he brought with him his French chef and 12 dozen chests of champagne. Having apparently reached his luggage capacity for the trip, he left behind his wife and their nine children. Beckoned by the company that had made him rich, he jumped at the chance to give up his seat in Parliament and abandon his family to travel to the Far East. He also decided to once again bet on himself, mortgaging all of his property in order to buy up as many East India Company shares as possible. Clive was the type of man whom Chairman Mao Zedong warned about beneath the label of bureaucratic capitalist. Here was a man who sought to use the levers of government for the expressed purpose of enriching himself. The company man wrote to his chairman that, "...we have at last arrived at that critical conjecture, which I have long foreseen. I mean that conjecture which renders it necessary for us to determine whether we can or shall take the whole Mughal empire to ourselves. We must indeed become rulers ourselves in fact, if not name, and perhaps totally without disguise. We must go forward... For to retract is impossible. If riches and stability are the objects of the company, then this is the method, the only method, we now have for attaining and securing them. They took land from the other leaders of the Buxar survivors and handed them over to Shah Alam. They also made some promises that they would one day seek to restore him to the peacock throne of the Mughal Empire. Having a pliable leader on the throne would allow the EIC to begin to siphon the taxes of the Indian population. They would also be able to make the rules rather than just maintain their pseudo-tax-exempt status. Clive oversaw the entire plan, even supplying one of his dining room chairs as the makeshift throne for Shah Alam. The Treaty of Al-Ulhabad was signed And in the words of Dalrymple, it was a hugely significant moment. With one stroke of the pen in return for a relatively modest payment and Clive's cynical promise on behalf of the company to govern agreeably to the rules of Mohammed and the law of the empire, the emperor agreed to recognize all the company's conquests and hand over to it financial control of all northeastern India. Henceforth, 250 East India Company clerks, backed by the military force of 20,000 Indian sepoys, would now run the finances of India's three richest provinces, effectively ending independent government in Bengal for 200 years. The mercantilistic destruction of India could now begin in earnest driving the company's stocks to unimaginable heights. Rather than borrowing money from the Bank of London in order to finance the purchase of subcontinent goods, the EIC merely redirected Indian tax revenue to purchase indigenous textiles and then ship them off for sale across the European and American continents. Economically speaking, this meant that indigenous workers would be paid with their own tax dollars. That's no way to run a business, as none of the profits could be reinvested within the factories, as they would inevitably be sent off to the company headquarters in London. Tax collectors wrung the populace for every available coin, while merchants and weavers were obligated to work for the EIC at below market wages. Failure to agree resulted in the government legislating them out of business, or worse, jailing the offenders beneath trumped-up charges. There were major social effects on the ground as well, as the Mughal nobility, which had symbolically filled out the ranks of the cavalry, were all left unemployed, as the traditional Indian military was replaced with European-style infantrymen. The era of the horse was over but the noble's fate was shared by the Muslim rulers of Bengal, for the EIC steadily replaced their role in the aristocracy with individuals drawn from the Hindu Brahmin caste. Incredibly, the reshuffling of society went unnoticed by the officials in charge, who failed to recognize the profound implications of the changes unfolding before them. Khan noted that this was because the company looked on Bengal merely as a buccaneer would look on a galleon. It took five years for the full effects of this regime of unregulated plunder to become apparent. But when it did so, the results were unparalleled in their horror. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.